Hello, our dear jurors. Listen, y'all, it's Ebony K here wishing you a very happy new year. We're so grateful for your support of Holding Court this year. We have so enjoyed hearing from you about what you like. Keep the feedback coming. Listen, help us spread the word. We want to know what you think about our show and how we can improve it. We are on a mission always, y'all, to inform and to entertain the culture. So now Dustin and I are going to be taking a little bit of break for the holidays. we got to get our little beauty rest and relaxation. Uh, but we're going to give you a little gift until we come back with new episodes of Holding Court in January. Our Black Effect Network sister, Teslin Figaro, she is a political media consultant. She is a political analyst. And she, of course, has a brand new dope podcast. Check it out called Straight Shot, No Chaser, where she's having some extremely interesting conversations with a variety of guests from politics on forward, getting straight to the nitty gritty on issues facing the black community. In fact, she and I are going to sit down and talk when Holding Court returns on January 13th. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this recent episode of Straight Shot, No Chaser, and look forward to a brand new episode of Holding Court with Ebony K. Williams coming on January 13th. Let's just keep it real straight shot with no chaser. I'm going to get a little bit rough. Here, rough. You either with us or you not. I'm here for those who really believed in the American process. All of us. You play with me if you want to. Straight shot, no chaser. With your girl, Tesla Figaro, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. Shout out to all of my straight shooters. You're listening to Tesla Figaro, straight shot, no chaser. I always talk about, and I say this before every podcast, that having allies are wonderful, but it's always important to have some straight shooters. And when I say that, I mean people who are willing to speak truth to power, who are not interested in making friends, those who are uh, giving a certain purpose in life in order to be truthful and honest about our discussions. That is what this podcast is about, not just this episode, but in its entirety on what I am trying to bring to you, my listeners at Straight Shooters. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we are going to have a very profound conversation with two people that I've had an opportunity to work with in the social justice space uh, that I know personally, but more importantly, a story that is unheard to a lot of people. People have not heard about this story, at least although it was a national story, people are unaware. They do not know that this particular incident happened in 2008. We tend to only talk about victims who have been killed by police. We tend to only show attention to those, to the families that have had to endure a loss, which is certainly painful, certainly something that we wouldn't wish upon anyone. But it is also important to talk about those who have lived to tell the story. This podcast today, we will be talking to Robbie Tolan, who was shot in Bel Air, Texas in December, on December 2008. I want you to go back in your mind and you... You will see that I will do this on a lot of podcasts. I, I always want you as a listener because we're not, we don't have TV. So it's really important that you, you close your eyes and you go back and you think about what was going on in 2008. 
Obviously, in 2008, Barack Obama was recently elected uh, to office. Everyone's mindset of now we have finally overcame, which is not true, which we'll talk about on other podcasts, but the, the mindset of, hey, we have a Black president. Things are feeling good. I feel now that we have, America has finally come to a place to recognize that maybe perhaps we will be judged by the content of our character and not the color of our skin. I'm going to welcome to the show Robbie Tolan, and his mother is also here, Marion Tolan. And we're going to start with Robbie telling the story on what happened in 2008. But I first wanted you to get your mind wrapped around that time so that as he tells you this story, it will prick your conscience. It will give you some some feeling about how you were feeling in 2008 after President Obama was elected. And let's see the contrast on what the reality was for Robbie Tolan as he drove home in Bel Air, Texas, which is a upper middle class area and how he was not judged on his content or character, but on the color of his skin. Welcome to the show, Robbie. Thank you so much for being here. If you will, walk our listeners through that particular night, what happened in December 2008. Sure. And uh, thank you for having me. Uh, It's an honor to be on uh, with you. Um, As my mom and I uh, both consider ourselves to be uh, straight shooters, for sure. Then you know my mom. So I was um, driving home uh, December 31st, New Year's Eve. Well, it, it was it was on the 30th, um, going into the 31st. So it was after midnight. And I pulled up in front of my house that I lived at for 15 years at the time in a car that I had had for four years at the time. And I pulled up and parked on my street in front of my parents' house, as I always did. And I turned the car off and opened the door and I saw a set of headlights shining on the inside of my door. I looked back, I saw there was a Bel Air police car. I didn't panic, I wasn't nervous, I hadn't done anything. And in Bel Air, a city of about 3,000 or so residents, at least that's what it was at the time. I don't know what it is now. Um, in a city of about 3,000 residents, they have their own police department. So, uh, you know, I went to Bel Air High School about a mile away from the house, and it wasn't uncommon to see police officers driving up and down the streets at all times of the night. So um, I didn't think anything of it. It was uh, just a normal uh, late night for me. And my cousin Anthony and I were getting out of the car, getting our things together and walking up to the to the door. Well, just as we were getting out, the car drove by us, made a U-turn at the end of the street and just sat there. And, you know, again, I didn't think anything of it. We got to the front porch of the house, my parents' house, and we heard get on the ground. And we I turned to look and I saw that it was an officer with his gun and flashlight on my cousin and I. And we said, you know, why? And he said, we got a report, you know, that the car stolen or some some something to that nature. And I said, no, that's that's a mistake. This is my car. But I have my ID. I can show you. 
So get on the ground right now. You know, the, the, the more we tried to explain that, hey, this is a mistake. Let me show you my ID. Let me show you my, you know, the car is in my name. The more agitated he got, he didn't want to hear it. So my parents, having just gotten home themselves, had come outside, had heard us, you know, hey, what's going on? This is my car. They had heard us from inside the house. And um, and that's when they that's when my parents came outside. And uh, I I we had a, um, a a pane glass window in the in the front door so I could see my parents about to come outside. So I said, OK, I'll get on the ground now because, you know, mom and dad are going to come outside and clear this whole thing up. So I get on the ground. And I, my my dad walks out first. He saw that it was an officer with his gun gun drawn. He threw his hands up. He said, you know, what's what's going on? The officer said something to the effect of, you know, the car that they're driving is stolen. My dad said, no, that's a mistake. That's our car. That's my son. That's my nephew. This is our house. Uh, at that point, he the officer uh, pointed his gun at my dad and, and took him at gunpoint uh, and put him up against uh, another car that was parked in the driveway. My mom is is, you know, pleading like, hey, this is a big mistake. We've lived here 15 years. Nothing like this has ever happened to us. This is ridiculous. You know, you guys have made a big mistake. And at that point, we didn't know that the officer had been calling for backup uh, repeatedly. So. Uh, another officer at that point had had run up the driveway and uh, told my mom to get against the wall. And she said, you know, who me? This is this is my house. And he kind of dragged her across the driveway and threw her uh, into the garage door. And at that point, I uh, not so nicely told him to get his hands off my mother. And without saying a word, he, he drew his gun and shot me. Wow. At that time, when your parents came out of the house to, you know, and, and, and I kind of, I want to connect this to the George Floyd case, that obviously a case that shook the world because of one of the things that we know with shootings, it happens so fast and so quick. And there's always somebody, you know, to say to either try to justify it, either the police officers or those who shoot, uh, those who support police officers always say, well, you know, it was sudden. I didn't know what was going on. There was a quick reaction, a knee jerk reaction with the George Floyd case. When the world saw George Floyd having the life drained out of him for eight minutes and 46 seconds, it shook the world in another it, in, a, in another way that it never had before. It allowed people to see that every 60 second interval, this police officer had an opportunity to get off of his neck. It allowed the world to hear people with their plea of saying, you're killing him. You're hurting him. He can't breathe. He's dying. The third part that really shook everybody to their core was George Floyd calling out to his mama to hear an adult man call out to his mother. And of course, as we see the transcripts that have been released, he also talked, he also talked about his kids, you know, called out his kids. But what really shook people to the core was him calling out for his mother. Later, we found out that his mother was deceased and 
she was not even among us, but something in his spirit called for mama. Your mother, Marin Tolan, who is a part of the Mothers of the Movement, which was founded as a support system from all of these collective cases. And I think people never really understood what the mothers of the movement meant, like what that meant. We know that it means that there's a mother that is grieving the loss of her child or had to endure police brutality, such as your mother had with you. But I think now America understands the pain of a mother and how the mother is not just the nurturer from a physical standpoint, but a spiritual standpoint by the fact that George Floyd was calling out to his mother's spirit. I want to play a tape of your mother who was there with you. And I want my listeners to think about, because this is what's so powerful to me, and this is what really shook me to my core. As you listen to this clip, I want you to think about George Floyd screaming mama. If George Floyd's mother was alive at the time, if George Floyd's mother was on the scene at the time, the way your mother was on the scene with you at the time, which is, this is very rare. This is why this case is so important that we talk about this case because it's very rare when someone's mother has an opportunity to be at the scene when her child is enduring police brutality. Most mothers run to the scene after it has happened. Your mother was at the scene at the time. So as we listen to this, I want my listeners to listen to your mother call out to God to save your life. This is what George Floyd was asking his mother to do, which was to speak directly to the angels, directly into God's ear to save him. And I want to listen to that clip so that people can hear what George Floyd's mother was possibly doing in heaven at that time, because I'm a spiritual person and I believe in that, at that time on behalf of her son. Let's listen to the clip. What you just heard was the clip of Marion Tolan screaming out to her son while he was shot and he was on the ground. Now let's listen to what happened after he was shot and what happened in the back of the police car. I'm, I'm, I need to get out of here. I, I can't go check on my child. Okay, as soon as, as, soon as they get here, I'll, 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 I'll talk to them and see if you can be released, okay? I'm going to call and see if I can be released. Which means I'm a criminal. criminal. No, ma'am, you're a witness. So, you heard the clip of Marion Tolan, who was my next guest, scream out, in the name of Jesus, Heal him, Lord. Protect him, Lord. Keep him, Lord. Those were the things that came out of her mouth, that came out of her spirit, that came out of her healing hands as she lay, as she stood over Robbie Tolan, asking that the Lord spares him for what she just endured with her son. This particular clip, because you cannot see, for those who know, uh, for those who do not are from not familiar with the case, I encourage you to go back and watch one of the many documentaries that uh, outline this, uh, in particularly one with Brian Gumble on Real Sports. They just did a, a refresher on this case because I want you to go back and look at the camera 
that we cannot see Marion Tolan, but you can hear her words. You can hear her plea. You can hear Robbie moaning out in pain and just compare that to how powerful that is with the George Floyd case and why he called upon his mother, why we have the mothers of the, the, of the mothers of the movement, why they're here to nurture us, to protect us, to defend us. And I want you to think about what you would have done if it would have been your son. I believe, and Robbie believes that, uh, in fact, he had on a shirt, Robbie, in the Real Sports documentary that said, I'm here because a mother prayed for it me, or a black woman prayed. It said, uh, alive because of the prayers of black women. Yes, 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 sir. That, man, that's so powerful. Let's talk about the prayer of the black woman who is your mother. Her name is Marion Tolan. Marion, walk me through your response to your child being shot in front of you and how you called upon the Lord and, and what you felt you needed to do in that moment. Walk us through that from your point of view. Well, it happened so fast. And one thing that I want the, the listeners to, to realize is that that officer was on the scene 32 seconds and Robbie was shot. He was not there. He did not assess the situation. He lied in court. He was there. He was on the scene 32 seconds and Robbie was shot. And it happened so fast that I did not even realize the fire from his gun. I saw it in front of me. And then when Robbie, I heard Robbie say, oh, God. And when he said, oh, God, I knew he had been hit. And I immediately said, Robbie call on the name of Jesus. And, and I started praying. I said, call his name, call his name. And because I wanted Robbie to connect and I wanted him to fight. I didn't, I couldn't even, I couldn't even wrap my mind around what had just happened, but I knew that God had to help us through this. And, um, and so after he was shot, they took my husband, put him in in the back of a police car. They took my nephew, handcuffed him, put him in the back of the police car. And then a female officer came to get me. And by this time, I just slid down. My legs gave out and I just slid down on the ground. But my hands were still up and I was just praying because I wanted Robbie to hear me pray. Robbie, Jesus, Father God, I ask in the name of Jesus. I wanted him to connect to what I was saying. I wanted him to know that I was there. I wanted him to know that God was there. And I had been praying for him his whole life. I mean, even when Robbie was in high school, on the way to school, every morning we prayed. Every morning. Um, I prayed for him every morning on the way to school. And then after the Columbine situation, we started praying for the school. So. Prayer was, was a, definitely a part of our life, but I wanted him to hear me. So when they came to put me in the back of the police car, I said, can I please stay here and pray for my child? They just took me, they really treated me like I had committed a crime. You know, the lady handled me roughly. They put me behind in the back of another police car. And so when I was back, I was screaming because... 
Not only did I want God to hear me, I wanted Robbie to hear me. I wanted him to know I was near and I wanted him to connect with me, pray with me in pleading. You know, the word says there are two or more who agree. I'm in your midst. And that's what I wanted. I wanted him to fight. And that's why I was screaming. And at one point, one officer said, be quiet. And I said, what? I'm praying for my child. Are you kidding me? I mean, they really treated us like we had committed a crime and no crime had been committed. And I said, am I a criminal? I said, "You can I go to my child? They would not allow me to go to him. So I'm in the back of a police car and I see them roll him in a stretcher, take him in an ambulance and leave. And I don't even know which hospital he's going to. I know nothing. They wouldn't answer any questions for us at all. It was, it was horrific, but the only thing that I was able to keep my mind was to focus on him connecting with me and praying. And Mary, the trauma associated with that, it just brings me to, t- it just, I mean, it's still just hearing you and listening to that clip, it shakes me to my core. I, I mean, it to hear you scream out, let me, let me ask that, Robbie, as, as she was, and then I'm going to get into how we need to move forward and some things about the case that I think people needed to know. But as she was praying over your body, as you laid on the ground, Walk me through that. What what was going through your mind at the time? Uh, I, I don't. It, again, it, it happened so fast that I didn't know. I, I, I saw him draw the gun. I, I heard the, the pop. I saw the fire. And then I felt pressure. And so, I, I mean, just in my imaginative cartoon mind, I was like, no, he didn't shoot me with a real bullet. You know what I mean? I'm thinking maybe it was rubber bullets, maybe it was a beanbag. I, I, I felt pressure. And um, I, I, the, the force behind the bullet lifted me up to my feet and knocked me against the front door. And then I fell on the ground and it didn't, it didn't click for me until I lifted up my shirt and put my hand where I felt the pressure and I pulled it out and it was full of blood. Blood was dripping down my forearm. And um, and I heard my mom say something like, you know, I see, oh my God, I see smoke coming from his chest. Like she saw the smoke and the officer said, you know, something like, oh, well, that's just the bullet tearing through the fibers of his shirt. Like not like, you know what I mean? Like it, it was, it was so cavalier the way they said it, but, but, you know, again, it didn't it didn't click for me until then. And then and then I was in so much pain and the bullet went through my lung, collapsed my lungs. So I couldn't breathe. But I heard her praying. And, you know, I, I you know, you think you're going to die in this situation. You know what I mean? And, and I, you know, was close to it and, and, and statistically probably should have. But I kept I, I didn't have any breath in me. And so with whatever breath I could muster, I just kept trying to to to, to pray audibly, like uh, instead of, you know, trying to wrap my mind around what happened. I just kept and I didn't even know what to, to, to pray except the Lord's Prayer. I just kept trying to say, our father, our father, our father. 
and and I couldn't. That, that's really all I could get out. But I heard her, and so I I, I wanted to keep uh, I wanted to keep fighting. That's so powerful. I, this show could easily be longer than my normal shows because there's so many different things we can pick. You know, just just unpack here. One, a, a black man defending his mother. You know, your reason for saying, you know, hey, you know. Get, stop roughing up my mother, you know, is is your responsibility as a man, as a son to have that be pretty much taken away from you says a lot to have your mother and your dad there witnessing that says a lot. The trauma that you still have to endure with that says a lot. As we move forward with this, let's get into the case and how you guys were able to not be successful on the local. And I really want people to go back and watch that documentary because it it lays all of this out that I can't get all in this particular show. But it lays out the issues that you had to go with on go through on the local level, the arrogance, the spitefulness, the disrespect. Uh, they, They felt as if how dare you, you know, challenge the system. Uh, I also want people to know about the career in baseball that they stole from you. Uh, People also need to know that you were not only on your way to do well in baseball, but you were genetically positioned with your father, who also did well in baseball. And how, again, there's so many things we can unpack here, how your your destiny was set out on a different course and how the police changed your destiny in, in, a, in a blink of, of an eye. Walk me through quickly the local trial and why you guys ended up pushing all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, the local trial was, you know, it was evident that the officer uh, he lied. You know, they lie so much. And that's why transparency is so important, because the, he just lied so, so much on the witness stand. He was indicted. By the grace of God, we got an indictment because so many families, even with videos, there's no indictment. And we had four eyewitnesses. You know, we didn't have a video, but we had four eyewitnesses. Well, when we just knew that the guy would be convicted. I mean, you know how, why not? The facts were there. This kid didn't have a, a blemish. He didn't have a parking ticket. Um, you know, he was unarmed. It was just no reason. You know, this, this business that they say he was reaching for something in his waistband. Now, who in their right mind would reach for something they don't have. I, I can't I can't fathom them saying that over and over again. But when that officer was found not guilty, oh my God, Robbie collapsed. It was just like I can't it was like he was assaulted again. It, it we we relived that again. That has got to stop. It's got to stop with black people and brown people not getting justice in the courtrooms of America. That has got to stop. So we, we did not have success at the, in the criminal trial. He was found not guilty. He went back to his same job. In fact, he's gotten a promotion since then. He was a sergeant when he shot Robbie. Now he's a lieutenant. It was like he got an award for 
you know, shooting. It, it, it didn't hurt his record. It didn't hurt his reputation. It was just like a badge of honor. And then the judge in the federal court, the judge dismissed our case, our civil case, based on qualified immunity, which meant that the officer was just doing his job. Not only did she dismiss the case, she ordered us to pay the officer's court fees, which were almost $7,000. So this man shoots my son. The bullet is still in his liver today. And we have to pay for his court fees. That was in the federal court. So we petitioned the judge and asked, can we please, can you put a stay on us paying those court fees because we're in the process of filing a, an appeal. Now for an appeal, you only have 30 days. So imagine poor black people who's not in the position that we were in. At, you know, at least we had a house to sell. But imagine people who have 30 days to file an appeal and they have no no resources. You know, they just get they, they, they get away with this stuff just over and over and over and over again. But we were blessed to find a, um, an attorney that took the case. We put our house on the market. They said, we'll sell the house. And the attorney was like, I don't want you to sell your home. I don't want you to be homeless. And I said, this is important to me. I can get another house. I have to be able to look in Robbie's face and say, I did all I could. I could not just take it. I couldn't just be treated like this and do nothing. And that is what led us to, to file an appeal. And we were advised not to because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which takes care of Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi is the most conservative in the nation. Well, that's a nice way of saying the most racist in the nation. And um, we lost. The, they ruled against us. And then we asked for the all 17 judges in the Fifth Circuit to review the case. And out of 17, three wrote opinions in our favor. And from there, we went to the United States Supreme Court. And what, what we were focusing on at the Supreme Court was the fact that we had four eyewitnesses, four depositions, and the judge just did not consider our testimony. She just took the officer's word and dismissed the case, which is what they do all the time. There was a lot of things that happened with that. When we got to the Supreme Court and I didn't even tell Robbie we were at the Supreme Court that we had filed until we had already filed and we had the, it was already, they had already conferenced the case and all that because he'd had so many disappointments. And I knew he would say, why mom, why we're not going to, we're not going to win. You know, I just didn't want him to have another disappointment and I didn't want him to be discouraged. And, and also I didn't tell my husband, now the attorney didn't know this. He thought everybody was on the same page. But I didn't tell my husband because I knew he would have said we can't afford it. And I'm like, we can't afford not to. So uh, when it went to the Supreme Court, the court contacted Bel Air and they said, do you have a response? They said no. 
And the United States Supreme Court said, will you have a response? And they said, no. Well, that took the Supreme Court off. So they ordered them to respond. And there was enough red flags in their response by them ignoring and skirting the issues that the Supreme Court, for the first time in history, ordered all the records from the criminal trial. And then when they got those records, they ordered all the records from the civil case. They'd never done this before. And then they ordered all the evidence. So they saw all the videos and they conferenced our case 13 times, 13 times. And then we won. We got the first unanimous decision in the United States Supreme Court in 13 years. And the first civil rights case against a police officer in over 25 years. And what that was, what that did was it got our case to go back to the same judge. It got it remanded back into her court because she was, she was like, we didn't have a case. And what it means for other people, because it's law. Tolan versus Cotton is case law. I mean, people can look it up. It's just like same-sex marriage is law. All those, that's law. And now when a police officer is, is in, a, in a civil rights case and a police officer is going against an individual, the judge cannot only consider the police officer's side. They have to consider both sides. Thank you for walking us through that. I, I, I'm telling you, every time you speak, it just sends something to, through my body. And I, I know the listeners are feeling the same way. You talked about qualified immunity, and that is something that why I feel your case is so important to be bumped back up because it is the perfect yes. uh, case to me to explain to people why the ability to go after police officers is so important. What is your mission? moving forward. And I'm going to start with you, Robbie. And I know, Ms. Tolan, you also have a mission in this and what the Mothers of the Movement is about. But Robbie, what is your mission in going forward that you've learned uh, from this this life-changing experience? You, you thought you would be playing baseball, but now God has called you to play in another game. And I call politics a game because that's exactly what it is. So what are you doing now? And how do you see yourself in this position, the the pitcher, are you the catcher? Are you running from base to base? Uh, because we all have a position uh, in this game called politics and social justice. So what is your position now uh, as we move forward uh, with this movement? Before I answer that, let me also mention that there were two other black men that were shot and killed by police on the same net in the, in the same 24 hours that I was. A guy named Adolph Grimes in, in New Orleans. And for those of uh, for those listeners who remember the movie Fruitvale Station, a guy by the name of Oscar Grant, both shot and killed uh, in the same 24 hours that I was or that I was shot. Going forward, you know, I, I, there there have been many, 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 because now we're going on, what, uh, almost 12 years, many days where I've just kind of wanted to crawl under a rock and not be bothered and just kind of be in my own space but you know it, you know when this when this sort of thing happens seemingly weekly you know i i absolutely have a responsibility to, to speak for those that can't speak for themselves 
And and that's that's my mission going forward. Um, that's what I've been doing for 12 years. I've had to scratch and claw just to be uh, mentioned in the conversation, but I've never stopped speaking out and speaking for those who are no longer here. I'm I'm just so thankful for my mother because, you know, if she had left it up to me, you know, there would be no case law. There would be no Tolman v. Cotton. There would be no, you know, there there may not have even been a, you know, a, 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 an appeal. You know what I mean? It's uh, she she was just um, tenacious and 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 she she was a. Uh, you know, adamant about doing all she could. Um, so she's she's really the, the the MVP of this whole situation because, you know, she would ask me about it and I would say, I don't care. You know, I, I was I was up and down and, and you know, depression and, and, and you know, I, I had some really dark, dark days. And um, she's the one that that took the ball and said, OK, I, I, I know you're not you're not feeling well right now, but I, this this. We got to keep playing. So she's she's really the superstar. And I'm so grateful for her and, and thankful for um, for her taking that ball. But, yeah, that that's that's my mission going forward. I mean, I've never stopped speaking. Uh, you know, I've written a book about it entitled No Justice, you know, in, in, in the countless documentaries. Anytime I can speak to a to a, a broad audience, you know, on, on uh, you know, a multitude of different platforms, I'm I'm game. But again, you know. Like I said before, it's it's I, we've had to scratch and claw. I've had to scratch and claw and fight and fight and cry and just to be mentioned in the conversation. You know, the narrative is, oh, wait, he didn't die. He's he's okay. Oh, you know, and I I get I get looked over. And you know, while those who are no longer here and those families they need that support, but but so do we because we've never stopped fighting. So going forward, that's that's. Um, that's what I will continue to do. You just touched my heart in such a way. And thank you, Robbie, for eloquently expressing that and also just showing the love of a black son for his mama. Ms. Tolan, tell me, what is your position in this? Why have you, we know why you've kept the fight up for your son, but you could easily just say you're you won your case and sit down and be done with it. Why is it that you have continued on as a mother of the movement? And what position do you see yourself playing uh, as we move forward in this social justice fight? Well, first of all, in the hospital that night, when the doctors told me he was going to survive. I told God then that I was going to fight for others. And I made God a promise that I was going to fight to help others. I want to put an end to this. And you have to believe that you can win. You you know, we can't just go out here swinging for no reason. We We have to stand for something. And I was tired of hearing somebody ought to do something about this. Well, I will take that up because I promise you, I was not afraid. It was like when I got this assignment, God just took the spirit of fear from me. I was not afraid. I wasn't afraid for my life. I wasn't afraid of losing. I wasn't afraid, period. And 
I've met so many mothers. There's no way. It's, you know, it's hard to explain. It was like me being there present was a blessing. And it was a curse because it was a blessing because no matter what happened, I didn't have these questions that mothers have when they get a knock on the door because I witnessed it all. I knew that he didn't deserve that. You know how the system will try to, you know, make us believe like they did something to deserve it. They want to, just like with George Floyd, they want to go into his background. Whatever he did in the past had nothing to do with that nine minutes, 10 minutes. It had nothing to do with that. And, and so, it was a curse because I relived it. I relived it so many times. I'd wake up and I would think I heard a shot and I would say, is this a, a dream? Lord, help me wake up. Is this a dream? But this is real. So I have to fight for those parents who don't have a support system. Because I, I had a support system. I mean, I have a wonderful family who was with us at the hospital around the clock for days and weeks. I have, to, I have to stand for those. I've been blessed, and I have to be a blessing to others. You know, I've been blessed with him surviving, but I have to remember that bullet is still in his liver today, almost 12 years later. He can't go anywhere. He can't take a vacation and go to the south of France. He can't go to Dubai. He can't go anywhere in the world and forget about what happened to him because when he takes his shirt off, his scars are there. And, and so I have to fight. I have to fight for those other people. I work with with um, I've become very close to Mike Brown's mother and Tamir Rice's mother, and I'm so proud of them. Uh, I met Mike Brown's mom like three weeks after Mike was, was killed. And she's grown up so much, and, and for years she wouldn't even talk. I would see her at functions, and I would hug her, and, and, and she, she couldn't talk. But she's found her voice. And um, and I just encourage her. She, I talked to her just last week, and and I'm proud of Tamir Rice's mother because what I can tell you is that fighting to help somebody else helps ease your pain. It does. When you focus on helping somebody, pushing somebody else up. It helps you. It blesses mm -hmm. you. That's so powerful. And that's why I did not want to interrupt uh, either of you with your story. I want to thank my listeners for giving me their full undivided time. I want to thank you guys for both joining with me. I do want to go deeper into the conversation to pick apart some things that I think deserve a, a show just on that alone, on how the impact is the mental anguish, the mental support that is needed, the emotional support, the 
possible suicidal tendencies that victims uh, have to endure, the career, the loss of money, the putting up the house, where we are now with Black people still having a huge income gap, uh, a wealth gap, and, and what families, as you mentioned, how are they able to move forward with legal justice? Those are conversations I want to have deeper at, a, at another time, but I'm grateful for the time that you've given me to walk my straight shooters through this. And I want to close with this. I listened to a couple of things that you said, and there are a couple of things that point out at how I want to wrap this up. Robbie talked about his mother being there for him. You also heard Miss Tolan talk about how she was no longer afraid. You also heard Robbie talk about how I am alive because of the prayers of a black woman. And so I want to wrap this up with this. If you go to my SoundCloud, you will hear me recite Psalms 23 because it's always been something that I have lived by, that I lean on, that is necessary because in the social justice space, in fact, I, I posted a meme here recently where I said that fighting for people that you don't know or that you do know or because of your personal circumstance is very lonely. This social justice movement is more lonely than what people think. But my meme said that it is very lonely. It has very little rewards. But the one thing that I can count on is I have no regrets. Few rewards, but no regrets. And so as listening to this interview, what it reminds me of is Psalms 23, which says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff shall comfort me. Understand what that means. When Robbie said, I knew that my mother was with me, she was the rod, she was the staff, she was with him. She was what they say that the Holy Spirit will send a comforter. This is such a blessed family to be able to have his mother there praying for him, guiding him, fighting for him, praying on his behalf. There's an old song that they used to sing in the church that said, thank you, mama, for praying for me. And so I want to thank you, Ms. Tolan, not just because of what you've been to your son, but the representation of what you are to so many of us. My mother is no longer here. May she rest in peace. When I broke my ankle, it was you that said, Teslin, let me help you. Let me get you to the doctor. You don't have to walk this journey by yourself. And so that touches me in a way. Because it's not the physical journey that I'm walking. But the spiritual journey. To know that you are not by yourself in this fight. When you and I went to Dallas. To fight together for the Jean case. And you picked me up in the middle of the night. And you said, Tesla, you turned around and you looked at me, you said, they gonna know who they playing with today. And you drove and I, and it's very few people who are shorter than me for those who are listening. I'm really short and Ms. Tolan is my height and probably a little bit shorter, which is five one, but that's not the point. We're very short women. And here Ms. Tolan and I 
standing five feet from the ground, just as short as can be. Our feet probably can't even touch the ground if we sit in a seat. And we think we're the tallest women on earth jumping in her car, literally got to hop into the car because she drives a, a big SUV. And it takes an extra step because we're so short to get into the car. And when she turned and looked at me and said, they're going to know who they're dealing with today. This woman is amazing in her fight and pursuit, not just for her son, but others. And even for me, knowing that I'm not always alone on this very lonely journey as a single mom, there's not always someone that can... I can cry on a shoulder to cry on at night or a mother to call upon. And Miss Tolan, you have been that for me through this process. And I bless you and I thank you for it. And I want to thank you for the prayers that you represent for my mother, who I know is in heaven and wants me to be safe. You represent yes. the prayers of Georgia's mother, who he called out to who welcomed him, I believe, into the bosom of the Lord. You represent the mothers of the movement. Those who, like you said, with Mike Brown's mother, it took a little while for her to get her voice. But in the meantime, the Lord sent a comforter to speak. In the meantime, the Lord sent Aaron. You know, Moses is it's important that Moses is there. But Aaron was the communicator. That said, if you cannot speak, I will speak for you. And you have been that. You have been that for your son. You have been that for Mike Brown's mother. You have been that for me. You have been that for the mothers that are no longer here to tell their story, that are not here to tell the stories of their sons and, and, and daughters that have suffered through police brutality. Marion, you are it. You are that mother. Thank you. And I want to thank you and bless thank you. you. And thank you so much again to both of you thank for joining me on this podcast. It was so necessary because I wanted your story to touch the world. For those who are listening, please continue to stay tuned in. I hope you found this conversation as powerful as I did. Stay in contact with Robbie Tolan. Go to his Instagram. Go to his Twitter. Go to all of his social spaces. Support this brother. Support his book. Support the movement. It is needed. He's thrown you the ball as the pitcher. My only final question is, will you catch it? You've been listening to Straight Shot No Chaser with Tesla Figaro. Until next time. If you like what you heard on Straight Shot No Chaser, please subscribe and drop a five-star review and tell a friend. Straight Shot No Chaser is a production of the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. I'm Teslin Figaro, and I'd like to thank our producer, editor, mixer, the one and only Marcy DePina, our mix master, Dwayne Crawford, and our executive producer, Charlemagne the God. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.